Today's podcast is sponsored by Zencaster. I use Zencaster to record the Tally Room podcast and it's an invaluable tool. I record pretty much every episode of this show remotely with my guests joining me from wherever they happen to be. Zencaster allows us to record with high quality sound even if the internet connection isn't the best. It records a high quality version on the local desktop and then uploads it when the internet connection allows, meaning that the audio the listeners hear is usually better than what I can hear when I'm recording. It also allows for recording video. I use it to be able to view my guests, but you can also record video in 1080p. On one or two occasions, I've used Zoom instead, and you really notice a difference. It's super easy to use Zencaster. I set up a link for a recording and send it to my guests, and we're getting started in minutes. Go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use my code TallyRoom, and you'll get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. I want you to have the same easy experience as I do for all my podcasting needs. It's time to share your story. Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm Ben Rowie. Indonesia has elected a new president. Prabowo Subianto has succeeded in taking the country's top job on his third attempt with the support of his former opponent, Joko Widodo. Despite earlier expectations that Prabowo would fall short of a majority and thus have to move on to a second round, the polls picked up in the last month and he's won a clear majority. No second round will be needed. My guest today is Marcus Meitzner. Marcus is an associate professor at the Coral Bell School of Asia-Pacific Affairs at the Australian National University. He's an expert in Indonesian politics and the author of the recent book, The Coalition's Presidents Make. Hello, Marcus. Thanks for having me. We're recording this podcast two days after the Indonesian election. Early results have now reported and show Prabowo Subianto well out in front with about 57% of the vote. Anis Baswedan is trailing on about 25% and Ganja Pranowo on just 18%. Prabowo polled about 44.5% in 2019 when he last contested the presidency. What do the results tell us about where Prabowo boosted his support to win this time around? Yeah, so it's not that difficult to read if you look at the numbers, the polling numbers. So we have a very good understanding how the voter migration occurred. And there are two major jumps in Prabowo's support over time. And that was number one in about February, March 2023, when Jokowi started to move away from Ganja Pranovo as his preferred successor and started to send signals that he might favor Prabowo. So then you see the first wave of uh, Jokowi's voters migrating towards Prabowo. The second and bigger wave of that uh, was in October 2023, when finally the candidates were nominated. And it became clear that now Jokowi had de facto endorsed Prabowo. Uh, voters understood that, although Jokowi always said he will be neutral in this election, it was clear from Prabowo's pick of vice president, which was Jokowi's son. Right? And so you see two things happening then in the polls. The percentage of voters who were convinced that Jokowi supported Prabowo escalated, and it's now at about 89%, which is remarkable given the protestations of the president that he is neutral in the race. So that's the one thing. And parallel to that, and as a result of that, uh, more Jokowi voters from 2019 migrated towards Prabowo. So 
Baboa now has about half of the 2019 Jokowi electorate. So if you look at the Prabowo electorate now, it's 50% of Jokowi voters from 2019 and about a little bit more than 50% of his own electorate of uh, 2019. Now that means Prabowo lost about half of his voters. They went to Anis Pakistan, right? But the important thing to understand in this context is that there was a very high likelihood that, let's say, there would have been a, a second round and uh, Prabowo would have faced Ganjar, that the honest voters would have returned to Prabowo in a second round. They wouldn't have gone for Ganjar. And so we have for quite some time, we had the second round scenarios and that would have been a landslide in either way. Had he faced Anis or Ganjar, it would have been the same thing. So it was actually never... Uh, for quite a long time. It wasn't a question if Babowo would win, it was a question how, it was a question of whether one round would be sufficient, and it turned out that it was. Hmm. Yes, so in a two-horse race, he probably would have been winning by a lot more than the 57% that he has now in a three-horse race. And it was interesting to look at those polling figures, because if you go back to like mid-January, he was clearly well out in front, but he wasn't over 50%. But as you pointed out to me before we started recording, that number had creeped over 50% in the last couple of weeks. So in the end, the polls seem to have done a pretty good job of actually kind of picking where things are going to end up uh, with Prabowo in the 50s and Anise coming second. Yes, and you know, we have a very strong record of uh, polling institutes in Indonesia. You just have to know which ones to look at. There's about, probably by now, about eight or nine that have over the years established a very good track record. There's also the ones that in the past have falsified polls for Prabowo in 2014 and 2019, because Prabowo's initial understanding of polls had always been, well, you know, you work with a polling institute, you pay them, and so then you uh, can determine the numbers. And one of the big strengths of Prabowo in this campaign has been that he changed his attitude. And Jokowi had a, a role in that, in actually training him how to work with polling institutes, that you need to understand your weaknesses, you need to understand your real numbers, you need to know where you're weak, where you're strong, where to go and put in an additional effort. So that's one of the big changes in Prabowo's political approach that he now actually does work with the credible polling institutes in order to understand where he still needs to improve, where uh, famously in 2014 on election day, he had simply come up with his own pollsters saying that he had won. And, and of course, then the count contradicted that. But yeah, so now he, he actually, with Jokowi's help, understands that if you want to win, you need to understand the voter. And you, you know, in order to understand the voter, you actually need to believe what pollsters tell you, even if it's bad news for you. Yeah, there's no point fooling yourself with um, incorrect polls, even if they look good. When you look at the provincial results or even the regional results, there's still a lot of votes to count. Those numbers might bounce around a little bit, but 
There's not huge differences between the main islands, but it looks like Proboa particularly gained ground in Java. So that sounds like he got a big swing there. You know, that was always a strong area for Jokowi. So that makes sense. Um, whether it's about geography or other demographics, do we know stuff about how particular demographic groups tended to vote or at least some educated guesses about you know religious divides or economic divides or any of that sort of stuff about who made up that coalition that voted for Proboa? As we discussed earlier, I mean the key element in Proboa's success was the migration of former Jacobi voters and that had implications. So he Proboa won now in central Java, which is the uh, stronghold of Ganja Pranovo and was the stronghold of Jokowi. Right? Uh, so Ganja Panova's campaign was always based on the belief that he would win in central Java and in East Java, where the majority of the voters are in Indonesia. But because Jokowi was very strong there, he pulled those voters away from Ganja. His son, of course, uh, Gibran, Jokowi's son, is the mayor of Solo, a city in central Java. And so the central Java voters moved away from Ganjar and uh, led to a result where now Paboa won in central Java too. He won in East Java as well, where again, Jokowi was very strong. So so these regional results, we just have to understand where the Jokowi voters went uh, from 2019. And, and we can ex- explain that. In terms of a broader demographic profile, uh, you mentioned the religious factor. It's a very uh, significant turnaround for Prabowo because he twice lost the elections in 2014 and 2019 because the non-Muslim voters who make up about 12% of the Indonesian electorate had voted on block against him in 2014 and 2019. And he got about 5% of non-Muslim vote. Jokowi got about 95. Uh, Pabowo won in both cases, the Muslim vote, at about 51%. But because the non-Muslim vote went so heavily against him, he lost the overall election. Now, this time, because of Jokowi's endorsement, non-Muslim voters went strongly for Pabowo at about, again, as you mentioned, we will have to wait for uh, more detailed exit polls. But by around 55%, probably close to 60%, they went for Pabor, which is a very important new development for him. That's for him a, a real breakthrough. So that's the non-Muslim vote, again, uh, decisive here. Pabor did, and that, but that is not new, he did very well with young voters. We've always understood that was the same case in 2014, 2019, uh, there's apparently just something about uh, Pabowo's character, sort of the revolutionary spirit, you know, the energy he's bringing to campaigns that young voters feel drawn to. So that was the case in 2014, 2019 as well. This time that was even stronger. And you will have seen some of the reporting. Uh, there was a very strong online campaign, a very strong digital campaign. They created these cartoonish avatars of Pabo, where he appeared as a cute, overweight uncle who was appealing 
to the electorate in order to, in a way, whitewash his image as a former you know, general under the autocratic regime accused of human rights violations. So that part of the campaign where they try to distract from the hardline image of Babo and put an, a digital cute kind of campaign against that, that also drew uh, young voters. Pabo generally, and this is, I think, where the two electorates of Jacobi and Pabo now have merged. Pabo has always been strong under the more educated and the urban electorate, while Jacobi was strong in the villages and the lower educated and lower income brackets. Now, that has now merged in, in some way. Again, Pabo made these inroads, and that explains why he's now sitting at about 58%, which, by the way, is more in a three-way race is more than Jacoby ever achieved in two-way race. We've had one result in a three-way race in 2009 where former president Yudhoyono won with 60%. So Pabo won't get to that number, but in the three-way race to get 58% is remarkable, in fact, and, and not predicted. I mean, we predicted it in the last month. But even four months ago, five months ago, that was far from being predicted. In fact, everybody who asked me at the time, I would say this is going into two rounds. Um, but in that last month, with Jokowi's help, Pabowo got over the line. I was just looking at the polling numbers before, and I know I said they were accurate, but they were all in the low 50s. And right now, it looks like Pabowo is in the high 50s. So, you know, I wouldn't blame a pollster for getting it that close and not quite getting it perfectly right. But actually, he has slightly overperformed what the polls said in those last few weeks. We work with a number of pollsters, and I was asked to comment uh, publicly on some of the latest release. The last release of one of the key pollsters, Indicator, actually projected 54% for Pabowo with a possible 56%. The number that they had out of the raw data was 52%, but then they redistributed the undecided voters based on an analysis of those undecided voters and where they were most likely to go based on their demographic profile. And so their prediction was 54 with a ceiling of 56. So they did come eventually very close. As you say, Pabo was still outperformed that as well. Obviously, we have in many cases sort of the bandwagoning effect, uh, and that's very strong in Indonesia. Uh, people want to be on the winning side. I mean, I have been by very ordinary Indonesians over the last few months. If I asked them, who do you vote for? In many cases, they throw back the question at me and they say, oh, who should I vote for? Who do you think is going to win? And I said, no, 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 this is not how it works. I mean, who would you like to vote for? But, you know, they are very interested in not being on the losing side, right? And so once it becomes clear that a certain candidate most likely is to prevail, then th there will be a migration towards those candidates as well. And that's what has happened here. From what my limited experience of Indonesian politics, um, that... You know, the relationship to being loyal to a party is quite fluid. You know, if you're in the U.S. context or whatever, you can have these close elections. But even when you know someone's going to win, there's a large number of people who would rather vote for the candidate. You know, they won't switch on that basis, although that does happen sometimes. Whereas in Indonesia, there's very much someone who's on a winner uh, can, like, there are maybe a much larger proportion of the population that is 
ultimately up for grabs if they think someone's on track to win, um, which seems to be the record we've seen from the last two presidents. That's right. And one of the things that Jokowi has done, and he's been rightly criticized for that, during the election campaign, I mean, formally, he said he will not campaign, but he did travel throughout Indonesia to distribute social assistance in the form of food, in the form of cash. And while, again, he said he was neutral, as I mentioned to you, 89% of Indonesians knew that he would be supporting Prabowo. And so the distribution of social aid to people in the minds of many voters was an attempt to get Prabowo's numbers up. And so implicitly, there was the fear among many of the poor that if they didn't vote for Prabowo, they would not be receiving uh, social assistance. Right? So again, this is a major feature of this campaign and which I think will weigh very heavily on Jokowi's legacy in the arena of democratic uh, quality. I mean, he basically, at in the last month, the last two months, he didn't take any prisoners. Uh, he didn't care about the optics anymore. Uh, yeah, he was pulling out all the stops. He was openly appearing with Pabowo in official events. He was having dinner with him. And he knew the message that would be sent out to the population was, I'm with him. And he didn't meet with the other two candidates. We did it exclusively with Pabowo. And so him traveling through Indonesia, distributing social aid was very clearly an attempt to tie the provision of social aid to voting choice. And so that also, if you talk about this last push that got Prabowo over the line in one round, that was a big factor in that. My view has always been, looking at the numbers back in October and November, that Prabowo would win without much pressure, without much intimidation, without much interference. In a second round, Prabowo would probably end up with 45 and so forth. But because of the dynamics of a second round scenario, he would prevail in the second round in June. But clearly, Jokowi had decided by probably about December that he wanted that to be over in one round. And then inciting concern over investors' certainty and so forth, the outcome would be in a limbo for such a long time. Investors would not come to Indonesia. And so he wanted it done. Right? And that's when he came out so strongly and in many ways overstepped the boundaries of democratic norms and values <clears throat> by mobilizing the state apparatus and denying that he did it. There was clearly, as we know from the reporting of uh, the news magazine Tempo and others, uh, that the police you know, was encouraged to you know, use its influence at the grassroots to implicitly mobilize support for Prabowo. Uh, again, the president himself uh, did this tour, which was widely understood as a campaign tour for Prabowo. So he was desperate, really, at the end to get Prabowo into the position of president-elect in the first round, and he achieved it. But I think the price Indonesia is paying for that is high in terms of the reputation of its democracy. You already see now some of the editorials that you know uh, international newspapers are writing. The Economist, for instance, had a very 
hard hitting one that you know he will leave Indonesia's presidency with a rotten smell, and I think that's unfortunately uh, rather correct because he unnecessarily, I think, pulled out all the stops to get Prabowo elected, and it it shouldn't have been like that. Your last book that I'm currently in the middle of reading is all about how Indonesian presidents build their coalitions to support themselves and kind of often turn themselves from a from a minority position when they take power into a position where they have majority support. And it's not just about their position within the parliament. Uh, it's also about other institutions as well. But I wanted to start with the parliament that, um, again, the results are not final, but it kind of looks like the parties that supported Prabowo haven't got a majority of the vote. They've probably got about 45% of the vote. How did the results go in the parliament and what position does Prabowo find himself in with that new parliament? Yeah, so one of the curious outcomes, and that was rather unexpected, um, is that Prabowo's party didn't do very well. In fact, based on the projections now, it will not even come second. Jokowi's former party, uh, Jokowi's position in uh, PDIP, which came number one, is unclear. Nobody knows whether he's still a member or whether he has been thrown out or whether he's been leaving the party, but they came number one. Number two is Golkar, which is the electoral machine of the former autocrat Suharto, and only then in number three is Gurinda, which is Prabowo's party. Normally, what we would have predicted uh, is what we call in political science a, a coattail effect, so that a presidential candidate, especially if he's doing very well, will pull the party vote up. So Gurinda hasn't really benefited from that. It's probably explicable by the fact that Prabowo's coalition was so large and that Jokowi was the main factor in creating this wave of voter migration towards him. And it wasn't Gurindra that was doing that. But still, it is uh, remarkable that Gurindra didn't benefit from it. As you mentioned, if you count all the parties that nominated Prabowo formally, you will end up with about 43, 45%. But as I explain in the book, that doesn't really matter because most parties then tend to support the elected president and elected presidents then end up with very large majorities. Because we control about 82% of parliamentarians in the last parliament, that was not what this coalition was about. In fact, in his first term, he controlled only 37% of parliamentarians, and he then, within two years, built a supermajority. So he was beyond two-thirds of support. I expect the same to happen here. There's a number of parties that were in the losing tickets coalitions that will migrate towards Prabowo sooner rather than later. So Prabowo doesn't really have to worry about that. Uh, there will be parties, especially, I think, out of the Anis coalition. So there was uh, Nastem, which is chaired by a media oligarch who is very pragmatic. He will go wherever power is concentrated. The other party in that coalition was a party based on Indonesia's largest Muslim organization, Atat al-Ulama. That also is likely to migrate to Prabowo because uh, Natata Lulama itself at the end pretty clearly declared its support for Prabowo and NU people, if you look at the numbers, voted for Prabowo. So it's very easy for these two parties to migrate. The one big question is over PDIP. So 
the party that was Jokowi's party, the party that feels betrayed by Jokowi, the party that nominated Ganja Panovo, who initially everybody thought was uh, Jokowi's preferred successor, then he dropped him. And so there's some very bad blood between Ibrabo and Megawati Sukarno Putri, the head of PDIP, who now feels betrayed. But that, again, doesn't matter. I'm very confident Pabo will have a parliamentary majority in no time. I mean, that will obviously require some negotiations. But, you know, as I explained in the book, that's standard procedure. Uh, people are offered ministries. They're offered other material benefits. And so they will automatically almost end up in the government's column. Now, how big Pabo's coalition eventually will be, we don't know. It could be close to the 80% where Jokowi is now. Uh, it could be slightly smaller or even slightly bigger because Babo has said, I'm the one who will embrace everybody. I will embrace the losers. I will embrace, you know, Anis. I will embrace Ganja. Um, and in fact, he had sort of projected that he might be the first president where every single party sits in government. It's still possible. It will be hard given the bad blood with PDIP. So Prabowo is the third directly elected president after Yudhoyono and Jokowi. The two of them had quite different styles in some ways, even if some of the mechanisms of how they govern were similar. Can you predict at all how Prabowo might differ from those two about how he governs and how he runs the country? The first thing to say about that is I'm certain that this alliance between Jokowi and Prabowo will dissolve very quickly and there will be conflicts between the two. I think a Philippine scenario is very likely where you now see President Marcos and his predecessor Duterte in a pretty heated conflict and with Duterte's daughter as Marcos's vice president. So quite similar scenarios that we have here. I think uh, there will be a grace period in which Prabowo will still honor the contribution that Jokowi has made to his campaign. Uh, but then very quickly, probably after six months, uh, he will establish his own authority and then will try to sideline Jokowi. So the big question we all had is what exactly Jokowi thinks he has in terms of leverage against Prabowo to enforce his loyalty towards him, because clearly the expectation from Jokowi was that Prabowo will continue his policies. I don't think that's guaranteed at all. That's the promise that uh, Prabowo has made in order to get Jokowi to endorse him. But now that's all over. Now he's president-elect. You know, he's got everything he wanted from Jokowi, and now he can be his own man. And especially after the 20th of October, Inauguration Day, all the powers will move to the presidency, not the vice presidency. Jokowi's son is now vice president, but it's possible that that doesn't mean anything, right? The vice president in Indonesia will only get as much power as the president allows him to have. So I think Pabo will use the winning formula of Jokowi, which means running a big coalition, have high spending populist programs, but they have to be his own programs, not those of Jokowi. Uh, and then use presidential powers to dish out rewards and punishments. So he will do that, but he will move away from some of the policy priorities of Jokowi. And the big sort of symbol in the middle of all of this is the new capital, Musatara, which Jokowi is currently building in Borneo, which he committed Prabowo 
to continue to build. But again, my prediction is that everything will be back on the table once that relationship between Jokowi and Pabowal inevitably uh, will experience at least tensions, if not, will fall apart pretty quickly. So for me, the elections were over probably half a year ago. So I've been sort of redirecting my attention to what comes next. And I think the big story that comes next now is the relationship between Jokowi and Pabowal. So uh, any assumption that this alliance, very pragmatic alliance between Jokowi and Prabowo will just continue <clears throat> as Prabowo takes power, I think are misguided. And some of the reporting has actually been quite good on that. And I, I look at, for instance, the reports by the business consultancy firms. Uh, they are all now basing their assumptions on the inevitable falling out between the two. Right? And that complicated things a lot in terms of predicting who will get ministries, because I think the tensions between the two will not erupt immediately. They will, like in the Philippines, between Marcos and Duterte, they will incrementally increase and at some stage then become public. So that's, as Indonesia watches, uh, that's what we now need to concentrate on. The elections are done. And again, I think the outcome was predicted in this way for quite some time. But the real story for us is now what happens between these two? I mean, how does Jokowi think that he can retain his influence and how will Prabowo try to become his own man, a president with his own sources of popularity, with his own sources of power? And the cards in this game are with Prabowo, they're not with Jokowi. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to watch, like, is Jokowi able to, if he does have a falling out with Prabowo, exercise power in a way that, like, because Prabowo will have all the institutions on his side, right? And, like, can Jokowi do anything to resist that with all the influence of his immense popularity? Is it over now that the next guy's taking over? I mean, one thing to tell your audience as well is, we, which we haven't addressed here, Jokowi doesn't even have a political party. He's always refused to establish one. He, in the last minute, engineered a situation in which his son, the other son, the younger son, you know, uh, Kei Sung, became the head of a political party, uh, and Jokowi threw his weight behind that. But surprisingly, actually, for me, that party failed at the ballot box, so it will not be in parliament. It's below the threshold of 4%. So Jokowi, in terms of institutional influence, he has nothing. I mean, Babo, even throughout this period, he's always had his own party, which was quite strong in parliament. There's other political leaders who have political parties. Jokowi does not even have that. So uh, that's what makes it interesting. Babo uh, will have all the institutional powers. Jokowi has none. How will he try to translate his continued popularity into political leverage. And I don't see it happening successfully for him at this point. So that's about it for this episode of the Tally Room Podcast. Thank you, Marcus, for joining me. Thank you for having me. You can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow the Tally Room on Mastodon at tallyroomandmastodon.au or like us on Facebook. This podcast is made possible thanks to the generous support of our donors on Patreon. Sign up at patreon.com slash tallyroom. Information about this podcast is available at tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to the tallyroom at gmail.com. Thanks to Christopher Rowe for writing the music you hear in this episode. 
Once again, thanks for listening.